0: Let's turn together to God's word and to Paul's letter to the Colossians. Paul's letter to the Colossians. So, and chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 24 to 29. 24 to 29 together. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. Paul's writing here to this church, and he says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles. The glorious riches of this mystery which is christ in you the hope of glory we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in christ to this end i labor struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me amen we give thanks to god for his work and in a few moments we will turn to that. But let's share some prayers together first of all. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Father in heaven, we bless you that we can come directly into your presence in and through the name of Jesus Christ, who by his death and resurrection has opened that new and living way. And so we come and we want to give you thanks this morning for Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Lord, and for this expression of his church, our fellowship here in this place. We thank you for one another and for all that we mean to one another. We thank you again for our minister, Bruce, and his wife, Elizabeth, and for all the service that they have given, the work that they have given, and we bless you for them, thank you for them, and ask your continued blessing upon them. We do indeed pray for all the office bearers and indeed for every member. As we have heard already, life is full of blessings, but it's also full of challenges. And so we would remember all in need in the fellowship at this time, those who are suffering in body, mind, or spirit. And to that end, we would pray for Cassie and the family in their recent bereavement. May we gather around them and support them and help them as we have always done with each other in the past. We pray for this land, and we pray for the king and his governments and those in authority over us, that they would rule with righteousness and justice for all the peoples of these lands. We pray for the church in Scotland, the true church in Scotland, that she would faithfully preach the gospel of Christ so that men and women and boys and girls would come to know him whom to know is life eternal we cannot help but think of the middle east and all who are caught up in that battleground and indeed all who are caught up in warfare throughout the world the people of ukraine who seem to have slipped down the newspaper uh, notices at this time so we pray for all who suffer because of warfare at this time we remember also missionaries we have a board through there in the hall identifying those whom we are associated with here in this church, our brothers and sisters overseas who go to serve Christ and work in his name. We also remember our brothers and sisters in other churches overseas who do face persecution, who cannot gather as we do, freely and openly. And so, while we remember them and ask for, that you would give them strength, we give you thanks that we are still in a place where we can gather in this way. Hear all our prayers then, those that have been spoken out loud and those that we have whispered in our our hearts and for those that we have simply said, Amen. And hear us and answer according to your will and purpose and in your time, which is always perfect. Amen. You would as always find it helpful to have your Bibles open again at Colossians chapter 1 so that we can follow through together the message of God's Word this morning. God has something very clear and powerful to say to us in His Word. And as we have our Bibles open, let us pray. Father, many of us were taught, and we naturally, when we come to pray, we simply bow our heads. And as we have our Bibles in our lap or in our hands open before you, that bowing is acknowledging the authority of your Word in every aspect of our own lives and every aspect of the church's life. And so we pray that you will speak, Father, very clearly. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the truth of your holy word. Amen. Friends, here in this passage before us, we find the Apostle Paul pleading with the Colossians that they might continue in the apostolic gospel. In a word, it is a plea for loyalty, their loyalty to their first love, from which they were in danger of slipping. People had come in amongst them and were saying, you've got Christ, that's brilliant, you've made a good start, but you need to do this, and you need to add on this bit, and you need to add on that bit. Always be wary of people who either want to add or subtract from the Scriptures. There are alarm bells that should go off in your head. They were being called to loyalty to Christ and to his gospel. And secondly, to Paul, who was Christ's minister, who is an example that all true ministers of Christ should follow. Though this passage is undoubtedly autobiographical, the passage is not so much concerned with Paul the man as the office that he held. Here, the Colossians are invited to examine the apostles' calling, the shape of his ministry, and the aims he felt compelled to pursue, as well as to recognize the genuine signs of God at work in the man himself. The ministry was very important, precious, and dear to Paul's heart, and he never lost that sense of wonder that God had actually called him, of all people, if you like, into the ministry. Hear what he says in First Timothy chapter one and verse twelve. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy, because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And here again in this passage, he gives us helpful insights into what we would call God-given faithful ministry. And I'm sure as we go through them this morning, you will realize how blessed you have been to see these traits lived out and exhibited in your very presence. Well, first of all, he tells us that the need of the church is a minister chosen by God to proclaim the Word of God. Look at verse 25. Paul says, of the gospel, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the Word of God in its fullness. The church in Paul's day and in every day and generation needs a minister who has been chosen by God. And Paul was such a man. Paul was made a minister, he tells us, by God, because God had called him to be a minister of the gospel. Now, being a minister of Christ's gospel certainly was not Paul's idea. If you've got any uh, knowledge at all of the start of Paul's life— Uh, In fact, our first New Testament picture that we have of Paul, and of course in those days he was Saul of Tarsus, is his involvement in the martyrdom of Stephen. Acts chapter 7 and verse 58 tells us that as they threw the stones, he held the coats. That would be called joint enterprise today by the police. In other words, if you're there, And something happens, and you don't do something to stop it, you're as equally as responsible for the people who did it. He was holding their coats to let them kill Stephen, and he was really pleased about that fact because he hated people who followed Christ. Next, we find him in Acts chapter 9, this time in a more leading role as a persecutor of the church. He's got letters of authority from Jerusalem, and he's on his way to Damascus breathing out terrors and thoughts. Let me just, I wasn't going to read this because there's, there's quite a few verses here, but I think it's really important to hear. He gives, he gives um, testimony to this uh, before King Agrippa in Acts 26, verse 12, talking about his former life. On one of these journeys, that is to put the saints into prison, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, about Nuno king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. God not only saved Paul, friends, but called him into the ministry. Again, back to Colossians chapter 1. Look what he says in verse 25. I have become its servant, He's just been talking about the church. I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the Word of God in all its fullness. The word here translated commission refers to a steward who oversaw the household of his master, and he oversaw everything that happened, even the finances very often. All the property was under his control. He had been appointed by his master. The minister then is the steward of God, the man chosen to oversee the household of God of the church, Paul as Christ's true minister, conceived of the work to which God had appointed him as both a high privilege and a sacred trust. What an enormous call and responsibility, yet it comes from God, and therefore it must be fulfilled. And he tells us of the purpose of that calling. Look at the second half of verse 25, to present to you the Word of God in all its fullness. Paul was chosen to present the Word of God, that is, to make the Word of God fully known. That great commentator Matthew Henry says this, talking of ministers, he says, We are Christ's ministers for the good of his people. To fulfill the Word of God, that is, to preach it. And that is exactly what Paul did throughout all his life, even to the very end. His single-minded devotion and clear, direct focus on the task that God had given him enabled him to fulfill his calling from God. He knew what it was, and he stuck to it. He knew what it was, and he stuck to it. Secondly, here in this letter, the message that God has given to Paul to put down The second great need of the church is a minister who will share the great mystery of God. Look at verses 26 and 27. Well, we need to link it up with verse 25, to present to you the Word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope, Of glory. The preceding verse has spoken of Paul's message as the word of God, a general term that sums up all the proclamation of the scriptures. Here in these verses, that message is more clearly defined. Now, the Bible is quite clear in Deuteronomy 29, we are told God reminds his people that, that there are certain things. Uh, that uh, he reveals to no one. The secret things belong to the Lord. We cannot always fathom out God's workings, can we? What is it they say? Uh, Vision has, what is it, something, hindsight has 20-20 vision. It's only as you look back that you can see the hand of God, and you can see that as a people, can't you? As we've been thinking about the last 25 years all the ups and all the downs all the challenges and all the blessings you've been blessed haven't you come on a wee bit louder that's better i'm glad i'm in one of these congregations where people speak back to me only as long as you agree with me the secret things belong to the lord there are other things that he only reveals to certain people Still other things, he tells us, were hidden in the Old Testament, but have now been revealed in the New Testament. And Paul calls these mysteries. The mystery, verse 26, that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. What does he mean here? Well, we have to understand carefully what Paul means by this word mystery. He's not talking of some secret information or right That is known only to a select few, as in the mystery religions of his day. This was one of the problems in Colossae. They were saying, well, we've got an extra bit of information here that we need to impart to you to bring your salvation to fullness. And and Paul quite clearly says, no, if you have Christ, you have everything to be rooted in love, as we heard to the children. You have everything. It's not Christ plus, it's Christ and christ alone. Rather, Paul is talking here about what was hidden in the Old Testament. They knew the Messiah was coming. They didn't know when he would come. But think of those wonderful passages like Isaiah 53, the suffering, suffering servant. Who was this suffering servant to be? Well, we now know it was Jesus, who came and lived and suffered and died and rose again for us and our salvation. Now it is known by all God's people because it's declared openly. Look at verse 27. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles. That is us, the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This great mystery, this great gospel truth, it's for everyone. It's for everyone. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Its benefits are not for some believers, a spiritual elite, but for everyone in Christ. What is this mystery? Well, the mystery is that Christ actually lives within the believer. It is the truth of the indwelling Christ. And that his presence is their guarantee of living forever in glory. And of course, this is exactly what Christ himself promised when he was here on earth. John 14, if you want to follow, you can. If you want to listen, that's, that's fine. John chapter 14 and verses 15 to 18. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Jesus talking to them in the upper room. And he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The paraclete, another Christ, one the same as Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. That's the mystery, that by his Spirit, Christ lives within us. What is it Paul says elsewhere? Remember that you are the temple of the Spirit of of the living God. Therefore, we are to honor God with our bodies. What makes the gospel attractive? It's just not that it promises present joy and help, but it, that it promises eternal, eternal honor, blessing, and glory. And it's for all. It's for all who will believe. It's to be preached to all. You and I don't know. I don't know when I preach. Bruce doesn't know when he preaches. Ian doesn't know when he preaches. Anybody who preaches doesn't know um, who God is going to call. But the gospel needs to go out. That in Christ there is salvation. Amen? In Christ and in Christ alone my hope is found. The third thing that we learn from this passage is that the church needs a minister who will willingly suffer for the church. You don't see that in many of the things that the Church of Scotland used to send out when it was trying to attract people into the ministry. They might have talked about the stipend and the pension and all the rest of it, but they very rarely said, come and join us for a life of suffering. <laughs> who's, going to like, who's going to stand up and put their hand up and say, yes, please, I'm first in the queue? But that is a real need of the church. Look at verse 24. Now, I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul is not a masochist here. He's not saying, come on, beat me up a little bit more, throw me out another window, drag me out another town, leave me half dead is acknowledging that suffering is part of the Christian life. Some of you know that whether you're preachers or not, don't you? You've suffered. And those of you who are younger may yet suffer for the name of Christ. I was really born, and I was born in 1960. That gives my age away, doesn't it? But that doesn't matter. And I was really, I, I think, born an okay time, because really when I was growing up, there wasn't a, a great deal of anti-Christian feeling. It was probably just more apathy. People thought, oh, well, that's fine if you want to go to the Salvation Army. And remember, I was in the Salvation Army. I wore a uniform going to church on a Sunday morning. You could hardly miss me walking down the street. I mean, people might not know who you are. It was apathy, but there's a real anti-Christ, anti Christian mood out there, and suffering for all the people of God, but particularly for the ministers of God, will be necessary. The church needs a minister who will willingly suffer for others. That is, the church, the body of Christ. Paul was such a minister. He had paid any price and went at any length of suffering in order to reach and grow people for Christ. He literally poured out his life. He suffered much, bore much for the cause of Christ in his church. Indeed, the early church considered a privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. Acts chapter 5 and verse 41, we read there. Remember that um, uh, occasion where the apostles are persecuted and they're thrown in prison and they're dragged and they're given a telling off? And they refused to to, to be quiet. And then we read there, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering, disgrace for the name. Go back a couple of pages just to Philippians chapter one and verse 29, Paul writes there to the Philippians, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Now, you're listening carefully to that. If you've got a Bible, look it up, please, okay? Come on, flick flick your pages. You've only got to go back two pages. (laughs) Chapter one's a great chapter. For it has been granted to you, look carefully at these words, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. I'm going to have the belief, I like the believing bit. I get all the blessings and the benefits. But it's been granted to you not only to believe, but it's been granted to you to suffer for Christ. It costs being a Christian. And maybe when I was growing up, it didn't cost that much other than a wee bit of ridicule from my pals at school and people like that. And society in general well, we were, we were around, we were Christians, bless them, you know, they need a wee bit of help in life, that's okay, we're not going to bother them too much. That's not what it's like today. That's not what it's like today. That's not what it's like today. A minister who will suffer willingly For the church, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Now, that's something that's been debated and caused caused a lot of controversy over the years. What it cannot mean is that somehow Christ's suffering and death was inadequate. Paul has just been extolling the absolute sufficiency of Christ. You can read that this afternoon, chapter one, verses 15 through to 23. The New Testament is clear that Christ's sufferings need nothing added to them. In Jesus' death on the cross, the work of salvation was completed. Do you remember what he cried out at the end? It is finished. Enough had been done. What does Paul mean then? What he means, I believe, is that the physical pain he endures at the hands of Christ-hating persecutors is the result of what he does to benefit and build up the church. He's called to benefit and to build up the church and these people can't get their hands on Jesus, but they can get their hands on Paul. And so he suffers for the work of the gospel in that Paul was receiving the persecution that was intended for Christ. Jesus had ascended to heaven and was out of the reach, so his enemies turned their hatred on those who preach the gospel, well, that's what Paul himself had done, wasn't it? He dragged them out, he sent them to prison, signing almost a death warrant. Fourthly, a minister who will preach and proclaim Christ for the benefit of all. look at verse 28, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Paul's passion was to proclaim him who had done so much for him. The minister is to preach Christ. Not a theory, not a good idea, not law, not morals, not codes to live by, not institutions or religion. As good as many of these may be, they are not the task of the minister. He preaches a person, not things. And what does, it, what does it involve? There are three things there. Look at them very quickly because time is running away from us. We proclaim him admonishing. People must be warned. They must be admonished. They must be told that they need to repent of their sin and selfishness and turn to God in trust and obedience. Do you remember Acts 16? It's the story of the church at Philippi and after the slave girl is, is healed, the, the, the goldsmiths and the idol worshipers, the, she used to tell fortunes for them, they've lost their income. And so they grab Paul and Silas and they throw them into prison. And in the middle of the night, in the deepest dungeon, they're singing hymns to God. And all of a sudden, you know the great Wesley hymn, My Chains Fell Off, My Heart Was Free, The, 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 the Doors Are open, The Chains Fell Off. And, and, and the jailer, whose responsibility is to keep them safe, I mean, he's going to lose his life, okay? That was the normative. You lose the prisoners, you lose your life. He comes running in and he says to them, he calls for the lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household. People have to be admonished. They have to be warned. That's an important part of the ministry. But also teaching and teaching everyone. That refers to imparting positive truth. It is not enough just to warn. Now, I know your minister doesn't do this, but it, you, you would soon get a bit fed up if every, if every Sunday he preached on John three sixteen and told you all you were a rotten bunch of sinners and you needed to get saved. That really wouldn't do you a great deal of good once you've got saved. I mean, it's good to remember what we were for the right reasons. But I think having been admonished, there has to be a balance. We then have to be taught. We need to grow in grace, as Peter says at the end of his letter, grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the faithful minister will warn of heaven and hell, salvation and judgment, but he will also teach. People need to learn how to live and walk in Christ. And you've been taught that, haven't you? What good teaching you've had over these years. I know that because I've sat here under that teaching from time to time. Notice also the word wisdom, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect. In Christ. This means practical knowledge. The word wisdom means practical knowledge. Teaching how to live the Christian life. Knowing how to apply and practice and live out the great teachings of Christ. Believers have to know how to follow Christ day by day as they face the trials and temptations of life. Why? So that we may present everyone perfect. What does that mean? The goal of the ministry is the maturity of the saints that you might be rooted in love, and that you might grow in love, that you might grow in Christ. That's what it's all about. And finally, the church needs a minister who will labor and work, always depending on the power of Christ. Verse 29, To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. You notice how Jesus gets all the glory at the end there? It's not about me, says Paul. I couldn't do this on my own. The word translated labor means to work to the point of exhaustion. How many times have we tried to speak to him, Elizabeth, and it doesn't work? <laughs> I say that because I love you and I care about you. Wasn't looking very happy there. <laughs> but particularly in these, this, these next weeks and months, if he's doing too much, tell him, You'll not like it but tell him seriously so that he gets strong enough and well enough to keep doing do it kindly don't pin him to a wall <laughs> it's the picture of an athlete struggling agonizing pushing himself well beyond his capacity in order to achieve no one can successfully serve jesus christ without working hard lazy pastors christian leaders Our lay workers will never fulfill the ministry the Lord has called them to. But all of this always in recognition of the power of Christ. What did Jesus say in John 15 in, in the vine and the branches? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Yeah, we can go through the motions. And you see churches that do that. They go through the motions. They sing and they pray and they have a liturgy. Not there's anything wrong with those things before anybody shoots me but they go through the motions. It's the power of Christ. Christ gets all the glory. Look at that verse again. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Well, in conclusion, we have seen in these few short verses the pattern of faithful Christian ministry in the teaching and in the example of the apostle Paul. Paul had been converted. He had been called. He had been commissioned. He had preached. He had strived. He had worked. He had agonized and suffered for the gospel of Christ, always relying on the power of Christ. That's the kind of minister you want. On this Lord's Day, we would cry out to the Lord to raise up a new generation of men like this in the pulpits in our land. And on a day like today, because of what I've just said, that's the kind of ministry you want. On a day like today, and I kept it to the very end because it's not about personalities, but honor where honor is due. On a day like today, we give heartfelt thanks to God that you have been given such a man in your minister, the Lord's servant, Bruce McDowell. For like Paul, he was converted. He was called and commissioned. He has preached faithfully the gospel. He has strived in the work of the gospel, worked and agonized and suffered through some of the big upheavals that you've been through, always relying on the power of Christ. So we thank God today for you, brother. Didn't want to make it all about you, that's why I left it to the end. But only right to say, in all honesty, honor where honor is due. And we pray today that God will continue to strengthen you in body and soul for the days and the work That is still to come. And all the people said? Amen. Amen. Indeed, let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We have this perfect pattern. And although none of us, not even Paul, would have claimed perfection for himself, nonetheless, it is a pattern that all true ministers of the gospel should live by. And I want to thank you personally for my friend, Bruce McDowell, who has ministered to me, in so many ways. I thank you for his kind words earlier about my support of him, but his support of me as we are true brothers in Christ and co-workers in the gospel. Thank you for this calling that you have given him to this place, the strength that you've given him, the health that you've given him, because it's all down to you, Lord, the abilities that you've given him. And pray that you will strengthen and finish that healing process in his body, that he may take up again this task that he loves so much, because he loves his Saviour so much, and we love the Saviour so much, and we thank you for him. Amen.